0: Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design.
1: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 400.
0: Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Goudreau.
1: Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 400 you're listening to. Four zero zero. Can you believe that? That's a lot of podcasts. Holy moly. But we'll talk about that in a bit. More importantly, let's talk about my guest for today's show. I'm talking about Grammy-winning remote recording engineer David Hewitt, who many of you will recognize is the father of former WCA guest and friend of the show, Ryan Hewitt. David has had quite a career and he's worked with an immense amount of artists. Let me name a few for you. The Rolling Stones, Frank Zappa, U2, Bruce Springsteen, Miles Davis, Neil Young, The Who, Pavarotti, Simon and Garfunkel, The Allman Brothers, uh, Aretha Franklin, Holland Oates, Bob Seger, Jackson Brown, George Benson. Yeah. And that's just the short list. That's just scratching the surface of the people he's worked with. Anyhow... David's on the show today. We're going to talk about his career. We're going to talk about his new book, which I'm holding in my hand. I bought an autographed copy from him, and I'm really happy to have it because I started reading it last night, and it is really, really interesting, and I think you all are going to enjoy it. It is called On the Road, Recording the Stars in a Golden Era of Live Music. I will put a link in the show notes. You could purchase your very own copy. And in it is a lot of stories, a lot of information. I have just got into it, so I'm going to be reading it all week. I'm probably going to finish it by the end of the week because I just, it's hard to put down. A lot of great information in there. Anyhow, very excited to have David here today. And I want to thank Ryan, his son, for helping orchestrate this. Ryan and I have been talking about this for, I don't know, like three or four years off and on. And we finally made it happen. And I think you're going to enjoy the interview. So David Hewitt coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends, and come reflect on 400 episodes of the Working Class Audio Podcast with me. When I get to the milestone episodes, 100, 200, 300, and now 400, I always like to stop and reflect on what the podcast has meant to me and what I've learned and where I'm at and where I'm at. Here in episode four hundred is a very different place than I was in any of the previous milestone episodes. When I started the podcast, I was not in the best place. I had got my ass kicked trying to run a, a big studio with a huge overhead in San Francisco for a number of years, and of course, the you know the that was the bad part. But it was you know it was also good too. I learned a lot. But the good thing that came out of that, the silver lining that came out of that, was of course. This podcast because sitting around trying to figure out, like, how does this all work? What am I doing wrong? Who can I talk to about this? And that's when the idea really came to me to do this. Now, I could have stopped a while ago, but quite honestly, it's become so much of a habit in my life. I can't even imagine stopping now because every week is a new episode and Each week presents me with a new opportunity to speak to somebody new, meet somebody new, make a new friend, and ask all the questions that I still have about how they got to where they're at, why they made the decisions that they did. Now, I know that I don't attract the number of people I could if I decided to talk about gear. And that's fine with me. You know, I'm fine with being, you know, at a certain level and talking about the things that I think are important. Gear is important to a degree, but the people behind it are more important to me than any piece of gear. And finding out what makes those people tick is something that really intrigues the hell out of me. Now, unfortunately, there's been a number of people that I wanted to have on the show that sadly passed away before I had the opportunity to get them on. There's a number of them, uh, including Uh, the great Ed Cherney, who was a close friend of today's guest, David Hewitt. Also, Jeff Emmerich, that was an interview that I was close to figuring out a time and a date and working it out, and I'll never forget waking up and seeing the news and just being devastated about the fact that I didn't get an opportunity to sit and chat with him at length. I did have the fortune of sitting with Jeff Emmerich at a dinner one time at a trade show But, you know, we didn't sit next to each other, and, you know, I didn't want to be a pest and asking you know, silly questions at the dinner table. That would have been rude. But I thought, ah, I'll get him on the show one day. And I really took that for granted. What I've learned is, is if there's an opportunity to interview one of the greats, uh, I take it. And today's guest, of course, is no exception. I'm honored that we could have David on today because he is truly one of the greats. So where do we go from here? What is in store for episode 500? Well, the questions will continue as I grow older and more experienced here in my 50s at this point. The curiosity does not stop. The yearning for learning, if you will, does not stop. I mean, selfishly, I don't just do this for all of you, believe it or not. I actually enjoy talking to people and asking them questions. So, you know, it is for me as well as you I get a big kick out of, out of talking to people and, and getting them to answer questions. Now, fortunately, the podcast has allowed me that luxury, that privilege of talking to all these people and having them be receptive to my questions. And I hope that I ask a lot of the questions you want me to ask. Now, I know, once again, we're back to the gear thing, I know that there's a lot of, like, gear questions many of you have. I said it before, I'll say it again. People are the most important element in the world of audio. So... Uh, as I always do, I want to thank you all for your lending your ears to me over the years and continuing to listen to the show. Week after week, I get messages all the time. I, I sometimes fail to mention that, that you all just are very, very kind in your words. You send a lot of encouraging messages. It always keeps me fueled to keep going. So I uh, definitely appreciate all of you that have taken the time to listen to me over the years. I'm always stunned at those who say I've heard, I've listened to every episode. And I think to myself, my gosh, the person must be so tired of hearing me talk, but yet they continue to listen. So I really appreciate it. So let's all raise a coffee cup. Cheers to episode number 400 and all the episodes that came before it. And here's to another hundred episodes and we can revisit this conversation at episode 500. So continue listening and thank you again. That's my rant. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. David Hewitt, here on the 400th episode of the Working Class Audio Podcast. David, welcome to the podcast.
0: Well, thank you. Glad to be here.
1: Your son, Ryan, who's sitting next to you, was one of my early guests way back May 25th, 2015. He was on episode 23 and oh he's he's due to to come back on the show at some point. But I'm really glad that we could get you on because Ryan and I have been talking about it for a few years now, honestly. And this is great that we could make this happen. So I'm going to dive right in. I know that you're originally from Montana and that your father was in the Air Force as a pilot and you moved around quite a bit. But can you tell me about your upbringing and how music or technology or the combination of the two played a role in your early years as a young kid or as a teenager.
0: Oh sure. yeah. well, you know one of the unique things about it I mean I'm I'm just shy of being a military brat. I was born in 45. So Montana was still fairly uh, uh, you know back in the in the early days. I think there was one active television studio in Butte, Montana. So we never bothered getting a a set there. It was all about radio. So radio played a a big part of of my early life and and still does. I still listen to radio. Did we see anything? I don't think so until, you know, my dad came back from World War II and and we we settled there. But in 1953, in comes the uh, the war again, and uh, he was called up. So uh, we moved again and, and I, I spent quite a bit of time till he came back to well, it wasn't civilian life because he stayed in the military. So we, you know we, I spent the rest of my life being an Air Force brat. Mm. But the music, when I look back on it, uh, the time that I did spend in, in Montana, of course, introduced me to a lot of the you know the country music and that sort of business. And the early 45s were, were, were coming up. But, you know, my parents had their old collection of, of 78s. And actually, that's one of the—I I learned how to break them <laughs> because they're, they're they're very brittle. So my parents were not happy about that. But I have that in my memory. But then when we—in uh, 1953, when Dad had been called back into the active service, where do we go? We go to Mobile, Alabama. Oh, boy. Now, that's slightly different than Montana. And, yeah. of course, the music there is— very different as well. But I, I really did come to enjoy that early country music, pretty raucous, some of it. And we stayed there for a couple, three years, and then we rotated to San Antonio, Texas. So, so there's another whole genre wow. of, of music. Big
1: cultural shifts from Montana to Alabama to Texas.
0: Exactly. And uh, every one of them had their blessings and curse. But by then I'm I'm old enough to be buying 45s, and I got my first little turntable, and really uh, became enamored of that stuff. But then at the end of that period, we rotated to Europe. We were stationed in France and Germany in the early 60s. Wow! And there was one radio station that uh, spoke in English, so I didn't listen to very much there because it was in French or German. There wasn't any any real American stages there, but. When we got to Germany, it picked up because Radio Luxembourg, if you know about them, that's a European station that broadcasts in English, but they played the Beatles. Mm. You know, we're talking 1960, 61, just as the Beatles are coming on. So, of course, that was huge. And listening on the local radio stations, listening to the Beatles sing in German (laughs) was pretty amusing. So we once again had the uh, variety of of, uh, pop music on that until I... uh, I'm almost done with travel here. When, when when we rotated back to the States again, yeah, because of the draft and all that sort of, they were waiting for me because I was I was 18 and the Vietnam War was going on. And I went back to my, my dad's home state and got an education in advanced mechanics and machining and all that. Because that was my first career was sports car racing. And that's where I went off to from there. And then I ended up back here on the East Coast. And even though I've been to all of the states and Europe and South America and all that. I'm still at home here yeah, in Pennsylvania.
1: When you were growing up, even though you were rotating through all these different states and Europe, did you play an instrument at all?
0: Well, yeah. My mother was a piano player and loved all the, all the music. But what would happen is that she would start me on something, guitar or, or a piano or, or a number of different instruments, and then we'd move. So we lost the, you know, I'd just get started and then I'd lose the teacher. And by the time we ended up back here in the States, we're into the rock and roll era. And I, you know, I would periodically pick up a guitar and try and and try and work on that.
1: Now you traveled so much as a kid, and I'm sure that that has its pros and its cons, but it would later on benefit you. And we'll, I don't want to jump too far ahead yet, but it would later on benefit you because of your travels, but- were you ever resentful of the travel? Were you not enjoying that?
0: Oh, no. It was, you know, it was a way of life. I was a military brat and uh, everybody around me were Air Force and, and we're all doing that. For those guys, every, about every three years, you're moving. And that's just, it's the way the military works. All the Army, Navy, the whole works. So it was normal. Mm-hmm. and fortunately my my parents were very interested in having all four of us brats get the education of travel and they took us, especially when we were in germany my My dad, because of his combat flying, gets a long vacation every year. We'd pile in the car and the camper and go see all the cultural sites in Europe, so it was an education that I you know, couldn't duplicate anywhere. I'm very happy to have that.
1: When did you become aware of audio production, or just get fascinated with the idea of recording? Did you ever question, well, how does this actually make it onto the forty-five or the the seventy-eights?
0: Well, in the beginning, you you don't even think about that, of course. You know, you just listen; it's it's magic. You know, it comes in over over the speaker. But for me, the, the beginning of that is once I was back in the states, and I actually joined the Air National Guard because they were about to draft me into the Army. Because I was already well-skilled in mechanics, I was able to continue with that. So, But I became very interested in sports car racing when I was in in Europe. And that was my goal back then, was to get into the professional racing. I worked for Roger Penske for a brief period, and with a Porsche dealership, a number of those things. But that started to get very, very commercial, as you saw with Roger Penske, who became the king of the world. You know, he's, he's he's one of the wealthiest men on the planet. And I, you know, I was disappointed in that because of my growing up in Europe and going all the great sports car races, Nürburgring, all that, that stuff, which was a whole different era and just incredible design and art and all that sort of thing. But, you know, once, once the, the big commercial Penske version of, of racing was happening in the States, I took a left hand turn into music. I met a number of women who were Singers and, and uh, jazz and folk, and away I went. So that, that was it. I jumped ship and uh, went into music.
1: And at what point did you actually start to think about the idea of, I want to be a recording engineer. You know, I want to get involved in this on the recording side of music.
0: Well, at the time, my girlfriend, Sherry, who was a phenomenal musician and singer and, and uh, writer and all that sort of thing, kind of pointed in that direction and i couldn't i tried desperately to play guitar in that band (laughs) and that didn't work but i as i often say i learned how to punch the record button and that uh, relationship kind of ended and i jumped ship into, into philadelphia and managed to get a job at the regent sound studio there which was a branch of new york bob lifton and worked for God knows how long for nothing, as usual, until I made 50 bucks a week. That that kept me going.
1: Did you just go knock on the door? Like, how did it, what gave you the idea to go there? And what led to that job at
0: Regent? Well, it was the singer, it was Sherry, who recorded in a number of those studios around then. And so I I had been taken in and and met Joel Fine, who was the engineer in charge at that time. And I I went back to him and, and, uh, Pleaded my case. Look, I'll work for nothing, and he he needed somebody. He was short on sight, so he he let me in the door. And after how many months that was, he finally pleaded with the owner, and I started making fifty bucks a week, so I could actually eat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of a long story, but I almost taught myself. You know, Joel would occasionally. You know, if I asked him a question, he would tell me. But back in those days, you know, there really weren't any schools, and I'm pretty much self-taught all the way down the line, but there were, thank, thankfully there were a number of the best recording engineers on the planet between there and record plant.
1: Did you and your father ever have a discussion, him being a military man, you taking these turns into cars and then music, did he ever object and did he ever try to encourage you to go into the military?
0: He was a, a very intelligent man in worldly uh, and a lot of sort of things, but he had been brought up as a North Dakota farm boy. And the eighth survivor of 10 people, he knew all about the hard scrabble. His father died of an equine disease that you can now cure with penicillin and the depression and all. You know, he's seen all the hard stuff and the wars and all of this business. And he taught me to fly. And at one point, I thought that that's where I was going to go. But you can see the glasses. And uh, at a certain point, they decided you, you're not going to be flying with the right. glasses. So I, you know, I I, I would keep flying periodically on, you know, little airplanes, but no, he was, he had the firm belief that everybody will find their own way in life. And he supported all four of us brats. I couldn't have asked for better parents. They were just great.
1: Wow. So back to Regent, were you there out of an interest in recording or were you there out of an interest in Shirley?
0: Well, we had, we had separated. Okay. at that point. And, you know, I I had no future in music with her, but I saw that as, is where I could be. Hmm. I was technically trained in a lot of different areas, not electronics really. Well, some electronics. So I just dove in and uh, decided, yeah, this is, this is what I want to do. That'll get me in with the music that I love, even though I can't play. (laughs) And away we went.
1: What were your takeaways from Regent? If you think back now and you think, wow, when I was there, I learned this, 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 and this. Anything that sticks with you from that particular location?
0: Quite a bit, actually, because, you know, Bob Lifton, who founded Regent in New York, was a real polymath in so many ways. You know, he was, a, he was a great engineer. He was always ahead of the technical curve. He knew the politics. He was big time in television. He was a, a consultant to major TV stations. And he was one of those people that would, you know, when I first attended some of his sessions like the big time tv stuff in new york and live doing live shows he would move at the speed of light mm. and he always had every you know the cues back in those days were insanely complicated on the big live live shows and nothing was automated you couldn't recall any of that shit you know it was all <laughs> it was on, on your notepad and in your brain and that was it and bob i can still remember the the first Big one that I worked with Bob. I was just the uh, assistant in the remote remote truck, and I could not believe the skill and the, the fortitude and the and the glee with which he would do this all this crazy live stuff, big time, rock bands, uh, full orchestra, you know, dozens of singers, you know, all this crazy crazy stuff. Boy, that that made my hair stand up and made me want to do it. Wow,
1: you weren't too intimidated, obviously.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think the expression is scared shitless. Oh, yeah. Uh, b- because it's it's just insanely complicated. But once I tripped into the live recording aspect, because I, I didn't start out to do that. I didn't hardly know anything about it. But when I was still at Regent in Philadelphia, we, we had to do a, a, a TV pilot for a client there. And it was going to take place down at the Academy of Music, great, you know, the classical orchestra uh, home. And we couldn't do that by, you know, we'd done a few remotes with cardboard boxes full of shit. And, you know, this had to be a truck. I knew about the truck in New York, the record plant had, because they had done the concert for Bangladesh. All right. And of course, that was kind of the beginning of that whole era of musicians becoming the big driving force for causes. So that really lit me up. So I knew they had the truck. So I called up record plant and I got Chris Stone on on the phone, one of the original guys and i said i i need to rent that truck that you guys used and if you know chris stone you know back in the day he was oh yeah absolutely you know we'll take care of it and the truck shows up with carmine rubino engineering and it was the old white truck it was a you know with an old Domitio console in it and all that, you know really ancient 17-foot box we knocked out that we they knocked out that remote you know i'm standing in the back watching and couldn't believe once again, like in, in the military and, and in aviation and everything, here's the pros. These guys are doing it at 100 miles an hour. Never make a mistake. The music comes out of those four inline speakers because they couldn't mix stereo in, in there. And it, it just knocked me out. And you know, we got the tapes back at the studio, and you put them up and it, it's all there. 16 track, MM1000s running running at 15. And that just, that just knocked me out. And I thought about it and I I thought, well, gee, you know, if I can do that, you you get in the truck, go in there, record the stuff and then leave, I don't have to do all of these mixes with 10 producers and and 13 guitar players, everybody telling you what to do. Right. I think I like this.
1: Because there was an autonomy to working in the
0: remote truck? It was like flying a mission. And I grew up with that, that whole concept of, mm. you know, you get in, you get in the plane and you fly. And I decided that I, I liked that. And very long story. I, I ended up back out in LA. I was trying to get a gig with, you know, Record I just built Sausalito right. up there. And I, I drove up there because I figured, boy, that's that's the place. Well, it wasn't open yet. Gary Kilgren was up there. He's kind enough to talk to me and, and he listened to my demo tape even. But they weren't open so I drove back down to, to LA and cornered Chris Stone you know for a job and 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 there's there's a hundred guys standing outside the door waiting for that job so I uh, ran out of money drove back to uh, Philadelphia walked into Regent uh what am, I, what am I saying no no I walked into a record plant in New York of course is, right. I meant to say walked in the door Frank Hubeck who was running the uh, the remote truck he, he sees me walking in the door at 321 West 44th. He grabs me by the, the shirt sleeve here and says, what are you doing? And I went, uh, nothing. He said, you're coming with me. And I went, you know, and he he literally walks me out to the curb where that old white remote truck was that we had used when I hired it. And he said, you can drive, right? Military drive. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're, all right. We're going. Drove up to one of the cities up on the, on the Great Lakes. And they're they're doing a doing a show, and it was uh, some band I'd never heard of, Mahavishnu Orchestra. You know, I had, <laughs> yeah. no idea. You know, we're banging away at that. And there's some band from Boston opening called Aerosmith, just beginning the stuff. You know, but I, I I love that. I mean, you know, that music was great. I said, okay, now we're 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 going back home. Right? No, no, no. We're we're going to Boston. I haven't got any clothes. No, we're going to Boston. Getting the truck. You know. And it was the Boston Orchestra, the Pops Orchestra. And we we got to take the console and everything else out of the truck, take it upstairs, because that's where the union guys want it. And we recorded a whole bunch of pop stuff. And I'm I'm out there standing in the middle of the orchestra, moving 87s around, which I'd never done. And, uh, you know, we did all of that stuff, bang, 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 bang. You had to
1: move the multi-tracks upstairs too, obviously. One of them, yeah. One of them. The, the, oh, my gosh. MM-1000.
0: That... MM oh. Know, those, thing, those things weigh 800 pounds. But, you know, it's all in the, in the game. You know, we, when we do that and we move everything back, back downstairs, go to load them up, liftgate batteries dead. Yet to, and I say, okay, now we're, uh, we're going back to New York, right? Yeah, yeah, but we got another gig there. And we did it at one of the famous clubs in New York. And it was one of the folk singers headlining, and, and there was – Max is Kansas City. And it was it was some guy named Bruce opening for the for <laughs> the act. And of course it was Bruce Springsteen. And that's who we were there to record, actually, because I, I had no idea. These recordings were for the for the first King Biscuit Flower Hour, the radio show. And those were two of the first acts that they did, and the first ones that went on the air with King Biscuit, which became a huge thing in the days. Because there wasn't much music on television, you basically, you know, the kids interested in rock and roll had to either listen to radio or go buy the album. That was it. And so King Biscuit became a huge success for many years because it was syndicated radio. You know, it played mm-hmm. all over the country. And
1: were you able to get a new set of clothes by this time?
0: Yeah, I was in great need of a <laughs> <laughs> of something that didn't stink. That was for sure. So I mean, that that was just a a whole, it was uh, jumping on the train, you know, and uh, I came out of that just dazed. This, I, I, this is what I want to do. Yeah. I bet that kicked your ass. Oh man. That was, that was just, it, it was, it, it was a bit like the racing world that I had left because it had all that, the, the, you know, the pressure and the thrills and.
1: The, wow. Let me kind of divert you for a minute. Cause I, I'm curious about that time period and technologically speaking, and we're talking about the Ampex machines but on the stage, how did that work? Were there splits at that time for the mics? How did, how did that work as compared to how things are done now?
0: That's a very good question because it was pretty primitive. You know, a lot of it, going back to the, the early stuff, they'd, they'd often just wide the mics or they'd put two vocal mics up on the stand, put, put some tape around them. Yeah. You know, that, that kind of primitive shit, which didn't work very well, didn't sound very well, and pissed off everybody. Because it you know, the, the PA guys, the musicians, nobody liked that stuff. But it was it was getting there. You know, the Jensen transformers came along. Right. Because uh, up until then they didn't even there there weren't even splitter transformers that were designed for mic level stuff. It was UTCs. So we, at Record Plant they made a brand new splitter box with a bunch of UTCs in them. They had a great, great industrial shop there. And that worked, you know, and they and they sounded pretty good, but they weren't accurate. They weren't designed for Mic level stuff. But at least it was an isolated splitter. Yeah. And that truck didn't have AC isolation either. So in in the beginning, half the time you were getting unusable buzz because of the grounding situation. There was no there was no AC isolation. But you know, once at Record Plant, Penn Stevens was the chief engineer. And they uh, they went, well, you gotta fix this, and went out and bought some great big ass isolation transformers for the for the AC. So gradually that truck became a real usable deal and i got involved in modernizing a lot of that shit but the old dominio console sounded great right but it only had 24 inputs and a few directs we didn't even you know we had to build a jukebox for it so we could even monitor 16 tracks
1: (laughs) i was gonna say yeah with with that input limitation yeah They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley. makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. Sampley.app, check it out. What about the quality of the mic cables in those days?
0: You know that gradually becomes a big controversy over how much that means. In the current big buck hi-fi era, it means everything. You know, oh my God, it's got to be gold. It's got to be you know all this stuff. And I I look at a lot of that. I have friends in that hot real high end business. And, yeah, you know, I smile and I listen to all the uh, the arguments and everything. And then I, and then I walk out because <laughs> I grew up in the live sound era.
1: Right. But I guess what I'm not talking so much about, like, you know, hi-fi quality, but more like quality control. Were they, were they manufactured well that they would last or would they crap out pretty quick?
0: Oh, yeah. A lot of that stuff was was awful because it had very little shielding. A lot of those early mic cables just had some inconsequential mesh surrounding the, the cable so you were always picking up buzz from light dimmers and, and all this stuff that happens on on stage and that that took a while you know for the cable manufacturers to realize there is a market there let's get a real wrap around the around the cable to shield it from all the lighting dimmers and all that crap but it was a it was a nightmare in the beginning because I'm, I'm taking all these beat-up cables out of the studio and half the time, the you know, the, the shield's starting to come apart and the ground cable. So we, you know, it was constant fight out in the field to try to get cables and everything working. And, you know, and that's pretty much the school you go to is just make this shit work. Get, get it into the console, onto the tape. And if you're real lucky, it'll land there without a buzz and on and on and on. Very difficult in those days.
1: What about the trucks themselves? Were they incredibly hot inside?
0: They certainly could be one of those classic events. There was a big show that used to go on every year in in Dallas, some of the first of the big rock festivals down there. And if you've ever been to Dallas in the summer,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: you're up into the 90s, and it's at the, I forget what the big stadium was in those days, but it's all open, and the, the audience is out there frying, and they bring in the fire hoses and all that stuff. And we're there to record. Aerosmith was the main client for us there but we're recording a bunch of the other bands that are there and the fire hoses are out you know trying to keep keep everybody cool so the fucking air conditioner caves in on, <laughs> on the truck right? cuz it's old you know this is a 1970 C60 Chevy so we got somehow we got somebody to get some window air conditioner and we we jack up some mic stands and open the cable door on the side of the truck and push the thing in there and we're in there in you know sweltering you know, with the lights down and uh, our shirts off, we're just trying to get stay alive long enough to get this stuff in tape. Jack Douglas is there with me because he was producing Aerosmith. Yeah, I think Jay Messina was there at that time. You know, we're we're just trying to get the stuff on tape and, and hoping the machines don't stop because you know these are these old MM one thousands and they weren't terribly reliable then either. So we we were really on pins and needles. But we you know we finally got it through and. By then, I was able to get out of driving the damn truck, at least. We would hire a driver. I was starting to become the tech guy for the remotes because nobody else would put up with it. You know? <laughs> right. But there, that's where my career took off because I knew enough and done enough remotes to run that operation.
1: Now, would you, you would eventually take over the remote division of the record plan. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's it because everybody else left. <laughs> you know, Frank Hubeck went up to Toronto and nobody else wanted that job because, you know, the studio is where people, you know, they came to Record Plant to be in, in the studio. They didn't come to Record Plant to ride around in a truck, you know. And so I got it. And they actually, they were even leasing it from Chris Stone out in L.A. because he didn't want that little truck either. And Roy Sakawa, who now owned Record Plant in New York, they bought it from Chris. They didn't know what to do with this. They didn't ask for this truck. It came in to do a couple of gigs, and then it was supposed to leave. But we kept doing gigs you know we kept getting work with it and it, it became something they had to do but you know roy sakala and and that uh, gestalt they always wanted to train their engineers roy didn't even hire accomplished engineers he wanted to have some enthusiastic musician or somebody that he could train in the record plant way so i come walking in the back door and I could kind of re- remember him still looking at me and saying, well, yeah, who's this guy? You know, what, what is he doing? Oh, he's doing the truck. Okay, we don't want to do that. You know, let him do it. <laughs> and it evolved that way. I, I, I will take credit for that because that was my livelihood. They, right. they didn't want me in the studio, you know, but you stay out there in the truck. <laughs> Make that work. What would that cost? Like
1: if I'm an Aerosmith in that time period and I want you all to come out and record, what would you charge Aerosmith for something like that?
0: In the beginning, they didn't know what to do with the business either. I think it was like a grand a day, eleven hundred a day, and then oh yeah, we better let's charge you for the guys that are working. And what do you mean per diem? What is what's per diem? <laughs> you <know? laughs> and you know, gradually, their their accounting folks who are, were wonderful ladies. You know, eventually, it, it became a business itself. Mm-hmm but I, I kind of had to make all that stuff work because it wasn't native to them in New York. You know, out in LA with, with Chris and Gary, they grew the remote business out there to great heights, but they, they left New York. You know, they they weren't interested in helping New York get a competition remote truck going, you know. So um, I, I sort of drove that bus. Tell me
1: about the the black truck. Is that something that You developed, you created a a truck that was called the Black Truck, if I'm correct?
0: I did, because as a few years went on, that poor old D'Amedeo thing was so outclassed, you know, it didn't have enough anything. I mean, the the D'Amedeo sounded great, but there was not enough anything, not enough inputs, not enough sends, all that kind of shit. And it was really getting strained to do these bigger gigs. But the business had grown exponentially, so there was a lot of work. But every time something would blow, it would become a problem. And I, I kept lobbying Roy and the, and the money guys, you know, we got to build a truck, a real truck. And it, it took me a very long time to uh, convince them. Uh, there, uh, a gentleman named Paul Sloman became the studio manager at a point there in, in that early 70s things. And he got it. Paul Sloman was absolutely brilliant. And he helped lobby the guys to, you know, pounding him and saying, look, you got to do this. You know, you're going to lose this business. Here's all the business you can gain. And I'm hammering them. And, and finally, they they relented. And I got just enough budget to uh, make it a real truck. We ordered a, this great Peterbilt. It was still a straight job, but it was as big as you could get on that, which was, what, I don't know, 26-foot box. And I, I essentially designed it, but we had a lot of help. Certainly the, the maintenance guys helped with all the building stuff because once I got my hands on the, you know, I ordered the truck and, and all those custom box that had, uh, it was actually lead lined and you know all kinds of shit that wow. I designed into it and real heavy insulation and diamond plate roof because you're up there on the live gigs, you know, you got to put up all kinds of shit on the truck and otherwise your foot's going to be going through that dinky uh, aluminum. So it was built like a race car. Hmm. I knew how to do that.
1: I want to point something out too, at that time period for the younger listener of the show there was no internet at this time. So any research you did, I'm sure was a series of relationships, not only were made in person, but lots of phone calls, lots of, oh, let me connect you to this guy who might know how to get that particular thing. You would agree with that. Is that correct? Oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah. There was, you know, that was all footwork and phone work. Yeah. And it's, it's something that you can't explain to people today because they've never had to deal with life. Like right. That. You know, people, I'll, I'll sometimes bring up something like that and they, younger engineers just sort of look at me and cock their head and go, uh, what do you mean? Why didn't you do this? You know, on the internet? Because there was no, there was internet, no internet. You know. <laughs> we didn't just
1: go on Amazon and put this stuff together. Nah, boy. As far as making a living during this time of the black truck era, were you surviving? Was
0: it tough to survive? Just barely because I was living in New York. Yeah. But back then, I had an apartment downtown and then later on, West 89th Street. And I was paying a a whopping $325 (laughs) for rent in a beautiful old pre war apartment building. It was a wonderful time to be there, except there were too many murders and shit. The city back then, New York was bankrupt. They were burning cars. They were was riot. Well, the riots didn't get too far, but lots of crime.
1: Yeah. Very different city than it is today. Oh, yeah. Well, so the black truck, built on a Peterbilt truck, quite customized for this kind of a thing. Did your efforts make the job
0: easier? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because we, we were able to design in a lot of that kind of stuff. I put in battery-driven cable rewers so that we could put the industrial hundreds of feet of cable on reels. So that once you landed at the gig, you know, you and the stagehands, you grab the cable and, and unreel it from a rotating reel, drag it out to stage. If that wasn't far enough, you had lots of 100-footers with the big amp connections on them. It became a, a real almost military kind of operation. You know, you move in, you, you jump out, you know, you set up the base camp, you do all that. Kind of stuff, and hopefully you can make friends with the PA guys and the production guys and the, the video guy. You know that was that's another thing that people don't really appreciate is you know you've got to go in and interface with the rest of, of the world, all the video guys, all the PA guys, the promoter, all that shit. There's a saying in in that business that originated with, with the PA guys, and they say that the show is that little inconvenience between the load in and the load out. (laughs) And it's, it's very true because that's only a couple of hours, the show. And we're there from God knows how early in the morning until three o'clock in the morning of the following day for the big shows, the big rock shows and TV shows.
1: And there's, as you say, there's so many entities and people involved video lighting, the local sound guys for the show promoter, it's very easy to get in somebody's way, piss somebody off, and not everybody looks at you as their equal, I'm sure. I'm sure they find <laughs> you an inconvenience to their situation.
0: Yep. Boy, you've been there, haven't you? It's very much like it. But you know, then there's the other aspect of it, and, and one of the ones that I, I think about, even though I don't like to, is the uh, concert for New York after 9-11 when the universe ended, and that was a very, very last minute operation to put all that together you know to pay respects and try and start over you know after and this this is just a month and change after 9-11 took down the, the buildings and there's one one in there that always stays with me you know not just because of that but because of the how far the live music and all the all the people involved in that sort of thing had had evolved because by then in you know 2001 it was intercontinental it was intergalactic you know the whole live music business and touring and all you know all these great big acts and everything and half of them are living in new york at this point and uh, among them was david bowie and you know so many of these stars were in that concert the concert for new york and david was very instrumental and by now i'm in the silver truck which is my big tractor trailer remote truck that i built later you know everybody's scrambling because there was very little rehearsal. They they pulled in all kinds of volunteer musicians and everything. So, uh, you know, we're going through all this scramble and we get all this thing and we hit a second remote truck. And when it goes to the opening, when everybody's been scrambling and, and all this shit and all of a sudden the countdown and you, and you got to do this because it's going out live in addition to the, to the tape. You know, here it is. And I, I forgot who, who made the introduction. Somebody had to do that. And then they introduce David Bowie. And, uh, you know, I can see big TV monitors and all that shit. And I'm sitting there sweating bullets. What's he going to do? The camera lights up. Bowie is sitting cross-legged on the lip of the stage. And I'm going, what's he doing? He's got a little, this old keyboard, you know, a little sit sized keyboard. And he starts, without a word, he starts playing something that, that you can't quite make out what he's, what he's doing, but he starts playing Simon and Garfunkel's... I've <laughs> I've come to look for America. Oh man! Wow! Wow! Man! Uh, Amazing! No, it, uh, it, it still still takes me out. And and he starts that, and as as he goes into the real chords of, the, of that song, you know, the audience gets it and they gasp.
1: And uh, I bet that was quite a moment inside the truck. Oh, man, because you're not just in the truck by yourself; you're surrounded by people, and I'm sure the emotion, the sheer weight of it. Just no, hit yeah, you all God. like a ton of bricks.
0: Yeah, it was just fucking astounding, and, and of course, you know the the audience gasps and the, and they really get it, and the whole thing is is going. And of course, you know when he finally gets gets through it, they they everybody just uh, you know goes goes crazy. And, and of course, it's it's the it's the survivors and the vendors, and this is all for the you know the survivors and the wives of the you know the, first responders and-, and yeah. So he finishes that. And he's got his electric band on stage behind him. You know the guys who were, who were currently on on tour with. Him. So they light up and they play heroes.
1: Oh, <laughs> wow! That's a that's and, an emotional it, uh, double uh, whammy,
0: man. And it and that fucking band, whoo. Amazing, just astounding. If if you can go. You know, you can easily find that on, online in the video thing of it as well. And it is so fucking powerful.
1: And, you know, we were talking earlier about the clash of people in a venue when you're trying to do a remote recording. Was this different? Was oh, this, yeah. was everybody cooperating and just kind of a little more, giving everybody a little more space and, and being cool about stuff?
0: Oh, absolutely. This is wartime this is This is fucking World War three, yeah, that we're going into, because nobody could tell where this was going to go. Is this going to be a nuclear war? They've attacked us and they've blown up all these buildings and,
1: right there was a lot of unknowns. I remember that for sure, yeah, just really, really,
0: really fucking crazy and and that's a whole thing it that that's there's some good pieces in my book about that. if anybody's interested in looking at that further there's there's a bunch of other stories,
1: right. I wanted to ask you, a lot of people who listen to this show, whether they're beginners or whether they're, they're pros, they have varying degrees of experience in different aspects of audio, you know, music, film, video games. But I'm going to take a, a shot in the dark here. And I think that a lot of my audience does not have a lot of remote recording experience. So could you kind of talk us through, like, what are the things that are different for remote recording as opposed to, say, studio recording. Can you talk about maybe choice of microphones or redundancy or just the little things that are a little bit different from a studio situation?
0: Well, you know, here comes here comes the plug. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my book is about, which you can actually see right there. Oh, there's yeah. There, well, there, I, ha- I have the website the in front of me
1: right which which is david hewitt on the dot com and obviously, for you audience, there's going to be a link in the show notes so you can buy a copy of the
0: book and that is i mean essentially that's what that that book is It's a finite history of my days in that business doesn't cover everybody, but it does go way back and pretty close to where that era, as I'm fond of saying ended for me, but there are so many stories in there and again a lot of that was made possible because there was endless traffic I mean the the live concert live video live everything in those days was just went off the map you know by the late 60s and right early 70s is considered that hinge point 69 70 71 there's been a great number of books actually written about 1971 as being the the fulcrum point hmm. for the live concerts and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And, the, again, the stories in, in the book is basically my hi- history of it. But it was an astounding era before that, you know, before the Internet and television and all that sort of thing took control of all that and deflated all of that. I probably did somewhere around 4,000 remote recordings. And a lot of them are in, in this book. And it, it gives, for people that are interested in it, it gives a real good accounting of that kind of life. Because it's, it's not the usual rock and roll stuff and then i did this and then i did that it's more about the people and the the music and the the impact of all those things and uh, you know some of it like the you know like the bigger concerts you know like the concert for new york and everything you know that stuff gets very complicated cuz there's so many acts so it's difficult to give you the musical history of it you know it's kind of cliff notes Right. version of it but for anybody that's that's interested the the book is very good at sketching out the history of that stuff and putting it in context of what it was like back then
1: do you feel that remote recording is a possibility for people to do now i mean even on a smaller scale you know with digital technology being a lot smaller and and much more uh, robust to some degree some of it is and the availability of, say, you know, sprinter vans and stuff like that. I mean, uh, is that something that somebody on on a smaller level could do?
0: Well, it is. The thing is, though, that as this business matured, you know, the remote trucks and all that, that kind of thing, and the business scale itself and video and internet, everything spread out like a flood mm. the way it went. So the answer, you know, short answer is yes, of course you can do that. You can get anything in the way of equipment and, you know, small digital recorders. You can, you can do it on your phone and a lot of people <laughs> do. So all of, all of that has completely changed, which is one of the many reasons that I retired from that, that business. It really no longer interested me. It was just so much work and so much complications and everything. So, you know, as a business model, those big remote trucks, it's insanely difficult to stay alive. A few of them do, but, but not for me. Thank you. That was, that, right. that was enough. Yeah.
1: Was security ever an issue during a show? As far as, you know, you've I'm sure you've got this truck. It's it's out parked in front of a venue or by a venue. And inevitably you're going to have a mass of spaghetti coming from the truck to the venue. So is there somebody there to protect those cables to make sure some knucklehead doesn't wander off and cut the cables or, you know, oh, yeah. smoke yeah. a cigarette well-
0: there and it's part of the job, from my standpoint, is that you've, you're always doing the advance work. You're talking to the client and the PA and the venue and, and all of these people and, and reminding them that here's what we need, here's what you got to do, cable runs, power, all that, all that kind of shit, before you even get there. You've got to do all that stuff. And in the big league, that stuff became pretty well cared for because there's too much money involved mm. and you can't fuck this up or it's going to cost you and your client and the venue... So all, all of that stuff evolved along with everything else. But once again, it's that, that saying, the show is that little inconvenience between the load in and the load out. And that requires, in the big leagues, that requires hundreds of people and all very specialized skills and on and on and on. So you, yes, you can do that if you're really interested in doing that. But the competition is insanely fierce. You're not going to get into that big league with a truck you built in the garage. Right, right.
1: One of the things that I like to talk about with my guests is kind of broad perspective here, nothing too detailed, but the profession of being an audio professional can be a tough one to survive. So do you have any thoughts or advice for those listening about the financial aspects of this business? How to conduct oneself, how to think about the long-term if you knew then what you know now, what would you advise somebody else about the finances of of this business?
0: Oh, uh, boy. Well, I, any number of rude jokes I could make about that, but <laughs> it's insanely complicated. And I know that you know of many, many people that have made successful careers as artists and some of them as engineers and managers and all that stuff, but it is very, very competitive and very difficult to do. But if they're really interested and really driven, they'll find a way. And there are some very good schools now. New York University has has got some really excellent, pardon me, I've I've forgotten the branch of the college, what they call that now. But you can get advanced education in all of those disciplines. And it's going to go way beyond just running a remote truck and a recording. You know, that's a very small part of the whole picture today. You really need to have a broad education and broad goals in order to succeed.
1: Yeah. But you you have to think about the the financial aspects of it to survive and to live out your older years as well.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. the, The answer is yes. Yeah.
1: Yes, you do. Okay. Audience, for you. Once again, you got to go to davidhewittontheroad.com. The book is called On the Road, Recording the Stars in a Golden Era of Live Music. You really can get a glimpse of what the book is about just by going to the website. And I highly encourage you to buy it, which actually you can buy a personalized signed copy right on the website, which I would also encourage you to do. David, I want to thank you so much. I've really been thinking about talking to you for a long time. The first time Ryan brought you up, I was like, he said, hey, what do you think about having my dad on? And I was just like, uh, uh, hell yeah, absolutely. And time passes, things happen, life gets in the right, way, but right. we figured it out, and I'm really glad that you could be here with me today, and it's a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and, and with Ryan, my son here, who has is, is, uh, long ago eclipsed anything that I was doing out there in the way of recording. It's astounding how far all of these things have, have come and and how far... My son has come in that, who has the complete package. You know, he has the education, he has the experience, and, you know, he's been at it for many, many years and paid every kind of dues possible uh, in that stuff to to earn his success.
1: Well, how fortunate for him to have you as a teacher growing
0: up. Well, he's way, way beyond that. But, <laughs> but, but yes, it was a good start. Yeah. And I, I didn't even charge him for it. Wow.
1: he got a free education. Yeah. Wow. here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today and for all the previous episodes that you have listened to. And I'll preemptively thank you for all the future episodes you will continue to listen to. It's been a pleasure. I want to remind you, you can head over to workingclassaudio.com slash 15tips to get the 15 tips to help you survive as an audio pro. These are tips and thoughts pulled from interviews from Jack and Dino, Andrew Sheps, Steve Albini, and Eric Valentine. I think you'll find it useful. But that's it. I want to thank my crew, Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and time after time after time, Mr. Chuck Smith there with his magic voice at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn, and as usual, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware,